0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ." things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. "...in him you also, after having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory." For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, That's chapter one of the book of Ephesians. That's pretty much everything we've been looking at so far in this study of the book of Ephesians. What I have tried to emphasize week by week, and the reason that we read it through again contextually, is so that you could hear that God is the actor throughout. In everything we just read, God did everything, and He did it through Jesus Christ. You did nothing in that whole relationship. Even the faith that Paul talks about, he's not only in chapter 2 going to explain that that faith is a gift, but he prayed to God and thanked God for the fact that they had faith and that they had love for one another. So God is always not only the first cause, but the only cause in the matter of people being saved. Paul lays that out plainly and clearly in chapter 1. And so after these many weeks of talking about what God does, what God has already accomplished, how God planned these things before the foundation of the world, how God determined to do these things using Jesus Christ as the final propitiatory sacrifice, Christ laying down his life to be the ransom price to redeem us and purchase us back off the slave market of sin. You may well be asking yourself, yeah, but where do I fit in all that? Paul is about to tell you a moment ago when Leon was praying, he said, You raised us from death to life. And my first thought was, No reading ahead. <laughs> Because chapter 2 starts out with talking about you. For the first time, we're going to hear about what you did. And Paul starts with, and you were a depraved sinner. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Because of your sinfulness which you are naturally born into. In a moment, he's going to say, you are by nature children of wrath. It is proven by the fact that babies come out of the womb speaking lies. Can I get a mother to testify? (laughs) It's just a fact that human beings don't have to be taught how to lie, how to cheat. Human beings come by that very naturally because they are born into this sinful estate by nature. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And so, from a theological standpoint, you can't tell dead people, incapable people, to do anything. You can't yell at a person long enough or loud enough when they are in this state of spiritual deadness. You can't yell at them and tell them to go believe. Run to Christ. Repent. Do good works. Change your ways. Be better. The simple fact is, people in their best dead state are already doing the best they can. And the best that they're doing is dead. The best that they're doing is children of wrath. The best human beings can do after their flesh is to walk after the course of this world, after the prince of the power Of the air. That's the best you can do. If you look around the world right now, it seems to me like the prince of the power of the air is working overtime. It seems to me like he is very active. Paul also combines that notion with the darkness of the rulers of this world. Not only are we individually, not only are we personally guilty before God but the entirety of the world system the kingdoms of this world the governments of this world are all corrupt are all in darkness and the whole world lies in the influence of the prince of the power of the air and yet somehow in the midst of that environment Too much of religion says you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You have to go figure out God and you have to make it okay between you and God and that you have to do that by some form of activity, some kind of work, some kind of law keeping, some kind of penance, that you have to go do something to make it okay. And Paul, in these words right here, I mean he's using dramatic words in order to say you can't do it. And that is why the entire first chapter that I just read to you is all what God did. And he did it for people who couldn't do it, who were his enemies, who didn't care anything about him, who were dead in their trespasses and sins, who were walking according to the lusts of their flesh, who were by nature under his wrath, and nevertheless God did for them astounding things gracious, miraculous things in bringing them to life, in quickening them, in regenerating them. And Paul said the whole reason, the whole impetus for why God did all that was because of his great love. That he loved us before he made us, before the world was formed. He loved us with this grand love that we can't begin to understand or comprehend where he knew that we were going to be incapable, sinful, rebellious, angry enemies. And nevertheless, because he loved us, he sent his son to be the propitiation that would remove that wrath from us. And boy, if you can ever get a hold of that, you're then going to be able to worship God aright. You're not going to have any problem putting your forehead down in the dirt in front of him. And saying, you are everything, you did everything, and I am nothing. I am the recipient of your astounding grace. And you, chapter 2, verse 1, were dead in your trespasses and your sins. The root word for sins there is a word, hamartia, that basically means missing the mark. The mark is the holiness of God. The mark is the perfect standard of God. The mark is living a life in perfect obedience to God. The mark is perfect fulfillment of God's law, his precepts, his standards, everything that he expects out of righteous holy people. If at any point in your life you fail to accomplish all that, you miss the mark. And that means everybody has missed the mark. Your sinfulness, according to John, is based in the fact that you broke God's law. And James tells us to miss the law on any one point is to be guilty of the whole law. So you have the entirety of the law of God, not just the Ten Commandments, that you haven't kept. That's the standard that is against you. That's how far you have missed the mark. As a consequence, that kind of incapability renders you spiritually dead. And Paul uses that language on purpose. He didn't say, you stumbled. You stubbed your toe. You do it all right every once in a while. Oh, not that great. But but overall, you're kind of okay. Instead, in the Bible, there's no neutrality, there's no middle ground, there's no gray area. You are either saved utterly and completely by grace through the finished work of Christ, or you are dead in your trespasses and sins, walking after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air, and you have nothing to look forward to but absolute judgment from a righteous, holy God who is not afraid to judge. Those are the two categories. And once you understand those categories, you understand the necessity of run to Jesus. You understand why it is that you need a savior. Why you need somebody to stand between you and the wrath of the God who made everything. Jesus is an essential. Jesus is not Gosh, I used to use this phrase all the time. I'm going to resurrect an old phrase. Jesus is not just a groovy accoutrement to your already groovy life. He's not a t-shirt you put on to look hip. He's not a badge that you wear to show that you're part of the gang. Jesus is the absolute necessity. He is the dividing point between eternal judgment and eternal salvation. And just because you're walking around on the planet today in shoe leather, in this fleshly house that you live in, and just because you haven't encountered the wrath of God yet, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen the same way that we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing the eternity in grace and love that is promised to us, the inheritance that God has given us, the same way that that is a rock-solid promise based on the reality of the Holy Spirit, that same God who sent that Holy Spirit as a guarantee has also demonstrated through history his wrath and his willingness to judge, and that is also a rock-solid guarantee. Run. To Jesus. You are dead. In your trespasses. In sins. Now Paul is going to be describing. The saints who he has already referred to. He has already mentioned their love for the brethren and their faith in Christ. So he is about to speak of them in the past tense. And say this is what you used to be. You used to be like this, but in describing them, he's also going to describe what human beings are like by nature. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk. You formerly walked in those trespasses and sins according to the course of this world. You were just like the whole rest of the world. Before God enlightened you, before he quickened you, before God introduced himself to you, you were just like everybody else. You were deeply dead in your sins and trespasses, and you didn't care because the deadness, the spiritual deadness that overtook you made you incapable of understanding that you were a sinner. You didn't understand who God was or that you had offended him. You didn't understand that judgment was coming. You were blind. Your heart was hard. You were deafened to all things that are godly. And you were walking after the course of this world. Walking in your sins and trespasses. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And then what is the course of this world? Again, I said earlier, you look around at this world and you can see the prince of the power of the air working over time. Walking after the course of this world is according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself. If you are walking after the course of this world, you are walking after Satan himself. Satan himself has designed this system and it's working well for him. Again, Look around. Here, I'll give you a few quick examples. God, way back when, with Noah, the rule, the standard that he laid out for the entirety of humanity was don't shed blood. That was rule number one, right at the front, don't shed blood. And so he got very angry at Israel when they started being like the surrounding nations, And decided not only to shed blood. But to shed the blood of their children. In order to appease the foreign gods. God's wrath was poured out on them. And they went into various different captivities. As a result of shedding the blood of their children. What you doing America? We're shedding the blood of our children by the millions. And the rationale is. Well, children are inconvenient. Or gee, we've had some kind of scan and we see that the baby's not going to be entirely healthy and so we're just going to get rid of that baby. We'll try again later, see if we can win the jackpot with our next baby. There are so many excuses. There are so many reasons that people give for why they systematically, by the millions, are shedding the blood of the children, the next generation of people on the planet. Now, as I was saying that, you were all shaking your head and nodding in agreement, and you're a depraved sinner, a fleshly person, and you understand how wrong that is. Just think how God must see it. Because you only know of some of the abortions. He knows every single one of them. He's angry about it. Since the time of Adam and Eve... He designed marriage to be one man, one woman. It's very specific. Jesus picked it up and said, from the beginning, that's how he made them, male and female. And then he put them together, because that's compatible. Male and female. And that's what marriage is. The world, walking after the course of the prince of the power of the air, has said, marriage can be whatever you want it to be. Two men, two women, three people, There's a woman in Texas who married a train station. I mean, it's the absolute destruction of God's intention for what marriage is. One man, one woman, male, female, two genders. Is that too difficult? There's two genders. There's male and female. Not anymore. No, in fact, the old man in the White House right now is now advancing laws that say that we have to now respond to people according to whatever they think their gender is. And biology doesn't matter anymore. And that they refer to as science. We're crazy. This world has gone nuts. And I have just described some of the big obvious things. But there is so much going on in the world that is anti-righteousness, anti-holiness, anti-Bible, anti-God, the governments of the world that have already proven that they can control the populace through fear of a disease, it's not going to be long before they start thinking they can control what goes on in churches and what can be said from pulpits. It's happening already in Canada there are already people in jail simply for preaching the word of God. The prince of the power of the air is working over time. And he's got it. He's got the world going the direction he wants it to go. And so Paul says, you formerly were so dead in your trespasses and sins that you walked after the course of this world, which is according to... To the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Again, no neutrality. You either have the spirit of God and you are pursuing the things of God, the word of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. That is either what you desire and are working toward in your life or you are walking not only according to the prince of the power of the air, but that is the power that is working in you, making you a child of disobedience against God. There's no neutrality. You're saved by the spirit of God, or you're walking after the spirit of this world. Among them too, says verse 3, among them too, we all formerly lived. All. Every one of us. That's how Paul describes us. That's the theology of the Bible and how people get saved. What you bring to the party is your depravity, is your sinfulness, because we all formerly used to walk according to the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night by some thought that coursed through your wicked little head that scared you enough, bothered you enough that it woke you up? Even a bad dream, just a bad thought, something evil that goes through your head that wakes you up and you lay there thinking, what was that? Okay, that's your natural mind at work. Paul says, you used to walk according to that mind. All the time. Whatever your wicked little brain could dream up, you'd go do. Because you were perfectly willing to satisfy your flesh whatever your flesh could desire, whatever your flesh could dream up, whatever it could contrive in your wicked little head, you would go do that. And you would do it without any conscience. You would do it without any sense of right and wrong. You would do it simply because you wanted to do it and oftentimes because it felt good. The Bible's honest enough to say there's pleasure in sin for a season And so you would go chase every wickedness that your evil, little, wicked, little, depraved little head could think of. And in the midst of all that worldly depravity, in the midst of walking around according to your flesh, and being a child of wrath, despite all that, God did for you everything that chapter 1 describes. I just want you to see the contrast. Because the contrast is dramatic. It is not you and God cooperatively getting you saved. There is no synergism going on between you and God where God did his part and then you kicked in your bit. Instead, God found you in this state. Absolute wickedness, deadness, incapability, walking after the course of Satan and perfectly happy to be that way and you were a child of wrath just like everybody else. So wrath, the wrath of God against sinfulness going to be exhibited, going to be demonstrated. The wrath of God is on every sinner across the board, everywhere, no neutrality. And so God has to do something for you. God has to pluck you like a brand from the fire. God has to do for you what you cannot and would not do for yourself. And now, having described you in this horrible state of wicked, depraved, sinful enemy of God, dead in your trespasses and sins, walking after the course of this world, walking after the course of the prince of the power of the air, after describing you all that way... Verse 4 starts, but God, and I love those two words because the first three verses described me really well, and then verse 4 says, but God, because it couldn't say, but you, because we already know you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking after the course of this world. So the Bible can't say, but you one day decided to regenerate yourself, to come alive, to spiritually resurrect yourself, and to recognize the rules and the supremacy and the obedience that you need to observe to God. You couldn't do it. Paul has gone to pains to say you can't do it. You're dead, dead, dead. Dead, dead. Have I mentioned the dead part? That's who you are, naturally, a child of wrath. Naturally, even like the rest. But God, why? Being rich in mercy. Now, we've heard the word grace several times here, and now the concept of mercy is being joined to the concept of grace. And theologians have tried to explain the difference between mercy and grace. The best explanation of the difference and why there's two different words is that mercy is not giving you what you deserve. You deserve wrath. You're a child of wrath, even as the rest. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve to burn forever. You deserve outer darkness. You deserve to not stand in the light and holiness and righteousness of God. That's what you deserve. Mercy is you don't get that. That's what you deserve. Grace is you do get what you don't deserve. You get heaven forever. You get the glory of God. You get to stand before him in righteousness without a spot or a blemish. You get to have your sins cast as far away as the east is from the west. God cast them behind his back never to be brought up again. You don't deserve that. That's grace. But what you do deserve, you don't get. That's mercy. So Paul says, knowing what you deserve and knowing how you are and recognizing what you are by nature, God being rich in mercy. Earlier we heard God was rich. We were going to understand the riches of his glory. We were going to understand the value of his call to us and that we were going to experience the riches of his glory. Now he's talking about the riches of the mercy of God. God is overabundant, superabounding in things like grace and love and kindness and mercy. And boy, aren't you thankful that he is. Now that relationship, you being sinful and depraved, is standard Pauline theology, that it is God who saves you, and that you can't do anything about it anywhere in the Bible that you read the theology of how people get saved. This is always the way that the theology is laid out. This particular study is a study of the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. So keep your finger there in Ephesians for a moment. Turn over to Colossians. To Colossians 1, right at the very beginning, just like he started the letter of Ephesians by laying out this theology, he did the same thing in the book of Colossians. So I want you to see that this is standard Pauline theology. This is the only thing that the Bible says about how people get saved. There are no other alternatives. If you're a Bible believing Christian, then this is what you have to believe about how people get saved. Because there are no passages anywhere. I'm just rambling till you all get there. But there are no passages anywhere that say you got to do something. Colossians 1, I'm going to start reading at verse 21. And although you were previously alienated, hostile in attitude, and engaged in evil deeds. Okay, so Paul does not have a real high estimation of human beings across the board. He says, before you were regenerated, before you were saved, this is what you were. You were previously alienated. What does it mean to be an alien? To be alienated means to be set apart, set away from the society at large to be separated from God and all godly things, and Israel itself, the community of God. You were completely alien. But not just separate from God, not just separate from the community of God, but you were also hostile in mind. What an interesting phrase. I know people to this very day, Who, if I bring up the subject of God, if I mention the Bible, even in passing, they know I'm a preacher, and yet they seem appalled by the fact that I would mention what I do for a living. By the very fact that I would mention Christ or Christianity or the Bible, they become deeply offended. And I think, why? What is that about? And then I remember that Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. They're going to hate you without a cause. And they do. There's just this hatred. Have you ever spoken to an atheist who believes that God doesn't exist and they hate him? And you think, well, that makes no sense. You shouldn't be hating something that you know doesn't exist, or at least that you think doesn't exist. You don't hate the Easter bunny because he doesn't exist. So I know people, atheists who believe God does not exist, and they're just filled with hatred toward him. Well, Paul already describes that. People by their nature are not only alienated from God, but they're hostile in their attitude. They are hateful toward all things godly. Not only are they separate from it, they hate it. And therefore, they are engaged in evil deeds, which means everything they're doing, their life, the way they walk, talk, the way they breathe, their life is hostility against God and evil deeds continually, doing evil deeds continually. That goes all the way back to God looking down on mankind before the flood and seeing that every deed and every intention of their heart was nothing but wickedness continually. Paul says that that's the natural state of human beings, and even to this day, if you are not saved by Christ, if you're not separated to God by God, called by God to himself, if that's not your state, then you live in this open hostility where everything you do is only evil and wickedness continually. So I'm going to say again, given that description, could Paul follow that up with, so get busy and make yourself good? He can't say that. So the next thing he says is, yet he has now reconciled you. The actor is always God. and the subject of salvation, the actor is always God. You are described as incapable, as dead, as evil, as wicked, as hostile, as alienated. And so what you couldn't do for yourself, God does. Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Wow, what a contrast. You deserve reproach. You are a child of wrath by nature, and yet Christ himself did the reconciliation work in his body, his body of flesh that he took on. If you want the big theological term, that's called the hypostatic union. If you know what a hypodermic needle is, hypodermis, under skin. So it is a word that means under static status the standing the the makeup and so the hypostatic union is that Christ was absolutely glorious one part of the eternal trinity he was holy in all his ways and he was not in any way fleshly he was not in any way like us earthbound creatures and yet he took on a body of flesh For nine months, he was encapsulated in the womb of a little Jewish virgin. And before that, he had been living in the splendor of eternity. And so that is a huge step down that he would allow himself to take on flesh and blood. But he took on flesh and blood, took on that body of flesh so that he could die. And that is how he reconciled you to God. Paul says in another place that we preach this message of reconciliation to people. Not that God needs to be reconciled. God's fine. God's perfect. God's holy, righteous, doing fine. But you need to be reconciled to him. He does not need to be reconciled to you. It is out of grace and out of kindness that he created this reconciliation work. And then Christ came to the planet, took on flesh and blood, died in his body of flesh in order to reconcile you. And that reconciliation is an eternal reconciliation that only had to be done once because it was so complete when it was done. And that means that God, who ought to be eternally angry at you, isn't mad at you anymore. Because Paul also says... Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Do you know what that means? It means he's not going to bring up any of the stuff you did, any of the stuff that you are, any of the ways that you were angry against him. It's not going to come up. Otherwise, that would be a reproach. That would be a correction. That would be him calling you out, for something you said or did or are. That's not going to come up. Remember a moment ago I said, as far as the east is from the west, behind God's back, into the sea of God's forgetfulness. He's not going to bring it up anymore, not because of you, not because of what you did, but because of the full, complete work that Christ did in his body of flesh when he came and reconciled you to God so that he could present you before God as holy and blameless as he is, and beyond any reproach. You can't begin to think that way. You can't begin to understand what that means. Even when I say to you, beyond reproach, you all kind of go, wow, wow, wow. Why are you having the wow moment? Because your whole life here on the planet has been full of reproach. You've been reproaching other people, and other people have been reproaching you, and you live in this body of sin, and you constantly feel guilty over your sin, and you're repenting for your sin, and you constantly have this sense of reproach on you, and yet God through Christ has no reproach against you when you stand before him holy and righteous, and you're not holy or righteous. I didn't mean to look right at you at that moment. You're you're not holy and you're not righteous and you're going to stand before God holy and righteous. Why? Not because you got so good and you did the law and you cleaned yourself up, but because of the finished work of a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. Because Christ did all the work necessary to reconcile you before God so that your sin is never going to come up. You are beyond reproach. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, there's the perseverance of the saints. If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, by the way, if you are firmly, if you are firmly rooted and grounded, if you are established and steadfast in the faith, then that means that you have indeed given up on yourself. You've taken sides with God against yourself and you've recognized your inability and you've quit trying to appeal to God on the basis of your own goodness and your own righteousness. Instead, you are steadfast in the faith, firmly established in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. We all naturally are legalists at heart. We all want to do something. We all want naturally to make ourselves better. In fact, I'll guarantee you this. At some point, you've had a pretty good day. Okay, probably not a day. A pretty good afternoon. Let's say of an hour. You, you had a moment when you felt like you were doing pretty good and things were okay between you and God. And then you tripped up. Then you did something. You thought something. You got angry. You, you did something where you thought, God can't be happy with me right now because look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I said I would never do that sin again. I said I would never return to this. I said I'd never act like this again, and here I am doing it again. God can't be happy with me right now. And yet, the Bible says you are not to shift from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Don't shift from that. Don't shift away to you and your flesh and your ability and your incapability and your failure and your sin and your anger and your repetition. That is not the basis on which God is dealing with you. He's dealing with you on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ who already did everything necessary for your full, complete, eternal salvation, righteousness, holiness, blamelessness before God he has already accomplished that that is the gospel don't shift away from it you're going to want to you're going to think it's up to you you're going to think when you had a good day God must really like me you're going to think when you had a bad day God must really be mad at me God doesn't change and the work it took to save you is already finished And it was finished 2,000 years ago, and it was finished perfectly. Therefore, keep your mind on the truth of the hope of the gospel. Walk confidently through this life knowing that your relationship, the reconciliation between you and God has already been accomplished. And you will find in the midst of this wicked world that if you keep your mind firmly planted on Christ and the hope of the gospel, you're going to have actual joy in this life despite this world. And you're going to have the peace that passes understanding that people can't begin to comprehend because you know who you are, what you were like, what Christ did, and where you're going. And that will be enough to carry you through this life. Keep yourself Firmly established, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was a minister or a servant. He serves the gospel. That's why, for coming up 20 years, we've been here at GCA just pounding away at the Bible to demonstrate who God is, who you are, what he did, what he accomplished on your behalf, what grace is, how much astounding mercy you have received, so that you can walk through your life getting the benefits that human psychology can't give you. Human psychology can't make you better. Human psychology is all about trying to tell you that you're worthwhile and you're a pretty good person. The truth is you're not going to find real genuine peace by staring at your navel and considering yourself and your works all you're going to find continually is the truth that the Bible already declares which is that you are sinful that you are depraved that you are incapable and so don't concentrate on that instead concentrate firmly grounded in the hope of the gospel the hope of your deliverance the hope of everything that Christ has already done for you that's where real peace exists That's where eternal peace exists. Back to Ephesians 1. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the same power of God that was demonstrated when he brought Christ up out of the grave, brought him from death to life. That same power that Christ demonstrated when he brought Lazarus up from the dead. That same quickening ability that God has physically, he also has spiritually. And he is in the enterprise of bringing dead sinners to life. And when he brings them to life, he quickens them, he regenerates them, and he gives them the ability to understand the things of God that were impossible to them previously. Is there anybody in the room here who's going to be honest enough to say that there was a point in your life where you couldn't make hide nor hair out of the word of God, nor did you care about the things of God, nor did you think of yourself as particularly sinful. You just thought you were clipping along in your life, doing pretty good. You were a pretty neutral person, mostly kind of on the good side. And when you died, if there was a God, he'd probably accept you because in your own estimation, you were probably pretty good. And you just couldn't make sense out of the Bible or theology. You didn't care about any of that. Well, that is the proof that God quickened you because you're sitting here now listening to an old bald guy ramble on continually about the grace of God. And you like it because God has quickened you. God has changed you. God has drawn you. God has called you. God has done everything necessary for your full, complete salvation, your full, complete eternity. And even while you were dead in your trespasses, in your transgressions, he made you alive together with Christ. And By grace, you have been saved. And then Paul does this amazing thing that Paul so often does. His theology is not earthbound. His theology is not just here and now. His theology constantly reaches out into eternity and speaks of the future as though it is a present reality in the book of Romans, whom the Lord predestined. Those are the people who he also called. Those are the people that he justified. And, then, and those are the people that he glorified. And there's not a one of us who can say, yeah, I feel pretty glorified right now. We're not at this moment walking around in the flesh. We're not glorified people yet. And yet Paul spoke of it as a present reality because in the mind of God who determined these things before the foundation of the world, you are already glorified because God doesn't live in time. And so then God already sees you as somebody that he has, past tense, already glorified. You just haven't experienced it yet. Okay, Paul does the same thing here in the book of Ephesians. Because he said that God, by his power, the same power that raised Christ up out of the grave, he made us alive together with Christ. So in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, that is the reason that we went from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. So we are raised to be alive with Christ By grace you have been saved, have been, past tense, by grace you have been saved, by grace you have been saved, by grace you have been saved. If you're saved today, it's by grace, it's not by your works, it's not by your internal goodness, It's, it's grace that saved you. And then Paul says this remarkable thing, and he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Where's Jesus sitting right now? I don't know, he could be sitting, could be standing. But where is he right now? On his throne. On his throne is exactly right. And why were you the only person to accurately answer the question? Yeah, because you, you wrote it exactly right he's on his throne right now in heaven he's in the heavenly places right now and in the mind and intention of God that was determined predestinarily before the foundation of the world you yourself are already saved and seated with Christ in heavenly places already glorified already holy already righteous already no reproach God is not reproaching you God is correcting you like a child whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He doesn't lose you. He corrects you. And then he brings you to be with him. And, and I'm just so confident that when we get there, it's all going to be new to us. It's, it's going to be just overwhelming and astounding to us. But it's to him what he has intended for all of eternity. It's just part of the master plan that you're going to show up before him in full, complete righteousness and blamelessness because in his mind, you are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you and he's in heaven, then you're going to go to heaven and you are already there in God's mind, already seated in these heavenly places. By the way, if you can conceive of yourself that way, as already glorified in the mind of God, as already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that ought to give you a tremendous amount of confidence. What do you care what this world thinks? What do you care what men can do to you? What do you care about the prince of the power of the air and the wickedness of this world? What do you care about that? You already have the all omnipotent eternal power of God securing you and placing you already in heavenly places in his own mind. You're not going to get lost. He's not going to forget about you. He's not going to change his mind. If you ever get a hold of this theology that Paul is advancing, the only theology of salvation that exists anywhere in the Bible, if you ever get a hold of this, it will give you a tremendous amount of peace and comfort and confidence. And the reason that we don't have boldness and confidence in our Christianity has more to do with our flesh than it has to do with God's word and his declarations of who we are already. Our fears, our trepidations, our concern that somebody might not like it, that's all our flesh talking. That's all, oh, they won't like me. Oh, they might say something mean to me. Oh, they we're always concerned about the the pushback. But we ought to have complete confidence knowing that the God we represent has already done all this for us, though we don't deserve it. Have I mentioned by grace you have been saved? Have I brought that part up yet? Because I've been saying that. That is the essential message that I've been trying to convey to you for these 20 years. That's really all I've been saying. I've said a lot of other stuff, and we've read through the vast majority of the books of the Bible, but the essence of the message is by grace you've been saved. Have been saved. You've already been saved, and it is a result of grace. Here, Paul's going to make it even more emphatic. Even when you were dead in your transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, Through all the eons of eternity to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. I saw Micah kind of go, wow, just wow. That's a wow sentence. He did all this for us, not because of us, not because we earned it. He did all of that to demonstrate for all of eternity the surpassing riches, not just riches as if that weren't enough, but the over super abundance, the the kind of riches you can't begin to conceive of or wrap your arms around this over abundance of the riches of the surpassing riches of his grace. And how did he demonstrate that surpassing grace? In the kindness that he showed to us who don't deserve it. And he did that through Jesus Christ so that Christ gets all the glory, all the honor, all the praise through all of eternity. Because he's the one who saved people who are described the way Paul just described us as wretched, sinners, hateful, divisive Walking according to this world, according to our flesh, according to the prince of the power of the air, and that God was nothing but good to us through grace, 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 so that he could demonstrate the surpassing glory of his goodness and his grace in the way that he treated us. That's why he did it. And that's why I keep saying, I don't think, once you get a hold of that theology, I don't think you can help yourself. I think you're going to get down on your face in front of that God and worship him because... The more you understand about how he did, what he did, and why he did it, the more it makes you go like Micah. Wow. Wow. But wait, we're not done. Because verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved. Have I mentioned (laughs) that by grace you have been saved? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, now a moment ago, Paul, when we were reading out of Colossians, we read that Paul said that God was going to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. So the faith is very important. The faith, believing in Christ Jesus, having confidence, being able to cast yourself out into eternity on the faith of the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that it's going to be okay between you and God because of what Christ Jesus did, you have to continue in that faith. So what about that? Is the faith something you do? Is this the part in the equation where suddenly you kick in? Because that is a very, very common theology in many churches, including the church That Tom and I were a part of out in California. We were taught that you would view the word of God. You would see that the word of God presented a God who was faithful and consistent and that you could trust him. But then you would take what was called the leap of faith. And you would cast yourself on that God because you had judged him to be trustworthy. So is faith Something you do. Is that where you kick in? Well, it takes a little bit of examination of what Paul actually wrote here in order to understand that the faith itself is also a gift. I'm going to prove it to you in a moment because just as I said that, people on the internet began typing to me. And I could hear their fingers clacking. So stop typing. Let me explain this. In the Greek language... There is a rule of Greek grammar that when you see a pronoun, that pronoun has to agree with the antecedent of the pronoun in number and in gender. Now, the English language doesn't pay as much attention to gender as, say, the French language does still. But the Greek language is very concerned with gender. Things were either in a male form or a female form, or sometimes they could be in what was called a neuter form, which means that they didn't have a gender assigned to them. But most pronouns had to agree in gender and in number with the antecedent so that you would know what the pronoun was modifying. The problem with this statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, That word that is the pronoun, and it is supposed to be referring to something in the previous sentence. It can be referring to grace. It can be referring to you have been saved. It can be referring to through faith. All you got to do is figure out what the antecedent is, and you can do that by seeing, comparing the gender and the number. And then you'll know what it's referring to. The problem is, the word that is translated that here is what is called a neutered demonstrative pronoun. Demonstrative because it demonstrates something. It it demonstrates particularity. It's the difference between saying, a lawyer lawyered up, and pointing at George and saying, that lawyer lawyered up. Okay, when I said that one, I was demonstrating which one I meant. So it's a demonstrative pronoun, but it's in the neutered gender. Meanwhile, the word grace is feminine. The word uh, faith is in the feminine form. You have been saved is in a masculine form, which means that the pronoun does not agree in gender with any of those three phrases. And so there is a rule in Greek grammar that when you come across something like that, the pronoun is actually referring to the entire preceding phrase. I hope that was not too technical. The long and short of it is, the that that is not of yourself, but it is a gift of God, refers to grace and you're saved and the faith. All three of them qualify as not of yourselves. They are a gift of God. So again, Paul's being very consistent in saying that everything about your eternal salvation is accomplished by God. And sometimes people read that in the English language and they say, well, see, grace, that's of God. But faith, you got to do that. You got to rev that up. But that's not what Paul taught. What Paul said is that grace and the salvation and the faith itself are not from you, they are a gift from God, not of works, Paul says, so that no one will boast, because you know that if you kick in your one-tenth of one percent, at some point you're going to say, yeah, we did it, (laughs) we got me saved, and boy, God couldn't have saved me if I didn't do my bit. We all want credit for something. So Paul says, none of it. You don't get credit for any of it so that you don't boast. So that you don't get lifted up in your egocentric sinful pride, which is just intrinsic to our flesh. So faith is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, it is not of work so that no one will boast. Your salvation is a gift of God, it's not of work so that nobody can boast. And the grace that accomplished all that is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, it's not a result of work so that nobody can boast. You go to Hebrews 12 and what you read is that we walk through this life looking unto Jesus who is identified as The author and finisher of our faith. The word our there, if you go look it up, is added by the translators. It's in italics. It's not in the original text. What it says is, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith. Okay, so what does that mean? He's the author and the finisher. It means he began it, and there is no greater demonstration of faith than the fact that Jesus hanging on the cross after crying out, my God, my God, why would you forsake me, would then say at the end of his life, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Tremendous faith, astounding faith that he demonstrated. He is the very author of faith, but he is also the finisher of faith. He completes that faith that he engenders in us. So whether we're looking at the book of Hebrews, whether we're looking at the book of Ephesians, what we see consistently is that everything necessary for our full, complete salvation and redemption for our eternity is accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. And that includes not only the grace that saved us, but the faith that sustains us. And the reason that we are going to continue in the faith is because he himself is our surety, is our guarantee. He's already given us the down payment of the Holy Spirit and therefore we are going to persevere through this lifetime no matter how hard it gets. One more verse and I'll let you go home. Actually, you're completely free. You can go home now if you want. But one more verse. Now that I have said all that, now that Paul has said all that, Now that I have eliminated any possibility that you participate through your own good merit in your own salvation, the natural question is going to be, well, Jim, you keep saying that it's not up to us and it's not up to our good works and that we can't do anything to get ourselves saved. So then we just do nothing. The answer is in the next verse. For we are his workmanship, which by the way stands in contrast with you're not saved as a result of your works, but we are his work, we are the work that he has done, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, whenever people hear me teach this theology, they call me antinomian, and they say, well, then you're saying that because God does all of it, then Christians can live just as sinful as they want to live, and it doesn't matter because God's not angry at them anymore, and no, 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 no. When God inhabits you with a spirit that is called the Holy Spirit, once His holiness takes up residence inside you, you then will walk in good works. Christians do indeed do good works. We walk in love and fellowship and forgiveness and kindness to each other. We walk according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We do these good works because we are his workmanship. He has created us for good works. But so much of theology, not just in Christianity, but in world religion, so much of it says, you got to do the good works to gain the reward. Whatever the reward is, you got to do the the works, and then God will reward you with eternal life, or 70 virgins, or nirvana, or whatever the reward is going to be. But Christianity, singularly, Out of all the religions on the planet for all of history, Christianity says God did it all and then you do good works in response to the fact that you have been saved. Your good works don't get you saved. Your good works are a result of the fact that you are saved. By the way, the contrast is you used to walk according to the course of This world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, what good works are you talking about? There are no good works for people like that. They don't suddenly do good works that become the basis on which God saves them. No, it's not until God saves them that they then can do good works. See the contrast? Evil people can only do evil things. Dead sinners only do dead sinner things that are leading to wrath. So how do you encourage those people to do good works and then tell them God is going to save you on the basis of your good works? They're dead. They can't do good works. There are no good works before God, before salvation. He has to regenerate you in order to bring you to the point where you can in fact do good works. And you are, in fact, called to good works. And that's why we walk out our Christian lives according to good works. We're not doing that in order to get God to like us more. We're not doing that in order to justify ourselves. We're not doing that to achieve some level of standing before God. Christ has already achieved our standing before God we do the good works because we are saved, because we do belong to an eternally good God, and he has done nothing but good stuff for us, good news the gospel of the salvation of Jesus Christ, that's what we cling to, and as a result we do plenty of good works does that make sense? Now, that was a Big swath of Pauline theology. But do you see how logical it is? You see how it makes complete sense? It's just, it's brilliant. I've heard so many times in my life people say Christianity, that's a crutch. Christianity, when you grow up and you get smart, you'll realize you don't need Christianity. I think Christianity is the smartest proposition in the history of human beings because no human being would have concocted that. How do I know it? Look at the religions of the world. And they all say the same wrong stuff. Only Christianity. Uniquely, this Bible creates and advances a theology that is this brilliant, that is this logical, that is this intellectual And that gives all the credit and the glory to God. And I've been at this a long time. And I'm just scratching the surface. But I'm here to tell you Christianity is the smartest, most intellectual proposition in the history of the world. Because it was created by the God who made everything. Praise the Lord for full salvation. God still reigns upon his throne And I know the blood still reaches deeper than the stain has gone. Let's sing that chorus a few times. Deeper than the stain has gone. We're not going to sing the verses. I just want to sing, Praise the Lord for full salvation. Sing. Praise.